Welcome to episode five of Think Aloud. I'm Harriet Fitchlittle, an art and culture journalist who is here to take you by the hand as we meet the people shaping arts and culture today. Today I will be less taking you by the hand and more clinging desperately onto any friendly stranger that will hold mine because we are talking about jazz. Now, Louis Armstrong once said, if you have to ask what jazz is, you will never know. I'm hoping that the guests joining me in the studio today will be more charitable towards the uninitiated than Armstrong was. Ahead of the EFG London Jazz Festival, we'll be talking to Orphie Robinson, the British jazz multi-instrumentalist, who has a busy few weeks planned, as the same week that he is performing here as part of the festival, he'll also be going to the Palace to receive his MBU. Joining me on this meandering ride through the world of jazz is David Jones, who is one of the directors and programmers of the London Jazz Festival. Last year marked 25 years of the London Jazz Festival. The first one ever was held at Union Chapel in Islington in 1993 as an outgrowth of the Camden Jazz Festival headlined by the New Orleans Rebirth Brass Band, who are still going strong today, I believe. I have with me David Jones, who is going to be talking about the festival. Hello. Hello, how are you? (laughs) Very well, thank you for joining us. I mean, maybe, as I think I warned you before we started this, jazz is not my forte, and that was one of the first questions I was thinking of when I was researching this. It's um, this New Orleans Rebirth Brass Band, who headlined the very first ever festival, which I think you were involved in organising. They still exist. There's still that kind of surge, isn't there, of party music. And I think in 1993, that was almost seen as something exotic. And now I think it's absolutely at the centre of what jazz is and where jazz is going is a music that people can really enjoy and be inspired by and be excited by. So there's, you know, that that sort of spectrum that goes from having a great party to being involved in something experimental and cutting edge. And that's what we try and do with the festival. So we can expect lots of bums and seats in terms of ticket sales, but lots of bums in the air in terms of dancing. <laughs> Ineloquently put, but you're expecting a lot of dancing at the festival. Yeah, the, there'll be things like that programme right across the festival, because it happens in 60 venues, and the South Bank, I suppose, is four or five of them, you know, so for us, it's that sense of being right across London, and able to draw in people who don't define themselves as being jazz fans, so we have things to offer them that they'll be attracted in by. On the last day of the festival, there's a fantastic singer from Venezuela who's working with Javier Limon, who's a kind of Mediterranean producer of film soundtracks, and Nella Rojas is based in New York, travels from Venezuela, and she's creating this special performance for the last night of the festival. First time she's ever played in Europe. How much of your role then is as a facilitator, and how many ideas come from you? It's a real mix. I mean, we know that we're... What are you most proud of? What are the ideas that you're really proud to have at this year's festival? I think the things that I'm really happy to have inside the festival are things that really represent classic jazz and then take it in new directions. So, for example, Bill Lawrence, who's Snarky Puppy's keyboard player, working with the WDR Big Band, with a legendary arranger and conductor called Vince Mendoza uh, leading the band, seems to me like pretty much what it's all about. It, It acknowledges the heritage and it takes it into new places. So that, again, is on the last night of the festival in the in the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And so, with apologies to Louis Armstrong here and to all jazz fans, what 
unites the people who are going to see you perform in this festival. For want of a better word, I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, what is jazz? I mean, you've got everything. There's, there's two, I think there are two ideas. One of them is... I see you're ready to go. You don't even need me to finish the question. You're so prepared to be asked about <laughs> the go. intricacies of jazz. <laughs> No, I was just look. I was looking at the range of the people we have performing, and it's everything from you know the South Korean vocalist Yunsun Na to um, there's a Debussy-inspired performance. There's music from the Harlem Hellfighters in World War One. It's just there's such a diversity of sorts of music that are coming in. What unites it? I think it's two things: one's spontaneity and one's improvisation. When we first started doing the festival, people were like really critical. It's like, this isn't jazz. What are you doing bringing in African music? What are you doing having you know these singers here? This isn't this isn't what the canon of jazz. And and luckily that that whole way of thinking has died out. I don't see the point of doing live music that is just repeated night after night because the audience can always tell it's like that. So we're programming things that we think will excite tens, hundreds, thousands of people. And you were talking then about a kind of sea change in the way people respond when you program things that are not what you know they they consider to be proper jazz. I was watching this documentary recently, the We Out Here documentary about the young British jazz scene, and there's a young drummer in that, Femi Calioso, yeah, who says that you know jazz has got the reputation for being elite and it's not elite, and he's right, it does have that reputation. And so, if you could give us a kind of very potted history of why jazz has acquired the reputation of being inaccessible. We know it's not, let's take that as a given, but why does it have that reputation? Uh, I don't think it does really. I mean, I think it's always been a music that people have played in schools. It's not a music where you need like an extraordinary Mm. level of virtuosity to start it, but I think it has stood in opposition to a very kind of simplistic silo approach you know that says rock and roll over here classical music over here jazz is the music that flows in between them all and joins them up and in a sense it doesn't really matter whether it's filling arenas and stadia and dance halls or whether it's something that's happening on a much smaller level i think it's a music that people have always been able to get into and and that's the case for kind of why it isn't really elitist but that doesn't totally answer the question of why you know this young drummer says at the beginning of this documentary this is perceived as as a slightly sectioned off part of the music do you just disagree with that or do you see where the perception comes from i i wouldn't want to argue about why he says it it must be his experience he must have felt that at some point but i think the fact is i think the festival is part of the dynamite that blows that attitude wide open i don't think it's something we've contributed to or i think people were very preoccupied maybe in the last millennium about the idea of the end of jazz you know that there would be a point where all the great jazz had been done and i think what jazz has done in the last 10 years is reach out so confidently to musics like hip-hop it's taken flavorings from other music which again you could trace back in the 50s and 60s you could listen to john coltrane and his fascination with indian music african music the things that he worked in that were an absolutely key part of an identity for jazz. But in expressing those things, perhaps there was a a time when people were using intellectual academic language around it, and that maybe presented the barrier. I don't think it's often the musicians or the way the music's played, it's the explanations. And I think very often, 
you know, academics delight in creating things which are complicated, you know, so that they can then create a theory and explain the theory in great detail. And I think now there's very much a movement not to create simple music, but to make that emotional connection a, a very, very central part of what you do. I'm going to ask Orphi this question as well when we talk to him, but what do you think makes, if you had to describe the sound of British jazz, or what do people associate with it? Well, I think the international aspect is very important. It's probably the first time since the 70s that people have actually been going, there is something definably coming out of Britain, and it isn't like one group of people who play together. It's a scene, and it's very diverse, and it goes in different directions, but it's the British scene, and we want to see it in Germany, we want to see it in Italy, we want to invite it to America. So it's going back to places that are already you know, doing a great deal of jazz, even into America, where people tend to be very unsure about jazz coming from other places and it seemed to have an energy and it seemed to cut across borders so energy diversity i mean does that what does that boil down to in terms of sound or is that impossible to say i think it's it's a sound of individuality really i mean i think Mysterious. you know yeah there's well I, I think a lot of it has come out of some form of dancing mm. you know i mean that's that's not to say that everything is dance floor music that's transformed somewhere else but I can't think of very much music that I'm excited by that hasn't kind of come out of a sense of of what happened on a dance floor 10 years ago and that's taking you back to the roots of jazz it's not like a it's not like doing something to jazz that it's never experienced if you were listening to jazz before the second world war you were probably dancing while you listened to it and that's great so the British might get a reputation for being good dancers at last <laughs> Unless our Prime Minister has anything to She's do with Leading it. the way. <laughs> and so something you've been talking about a lot with this festival is the idea to not be, uh, in, in any ways, uh, gatekeepers to a certain sort of music or a certain sort of experience. But you have to be gatekeepers in a way because you are choosing what gets programmed and the calibre of the things on the programme. How do you go about doing that in a way that feels inclusive? Do you spend every night of the week at gigs in tiny venues trying to find the best musicians because presumably you don't want to go just off what is kind of the established canon of good performers I'd say what we I mean there are a lot of people at Sirius and a lot of people who are close to us so that sense of word of mouth is very important that draws you to things um, we sometimes will think oh we want to program in this direction we'd like to look at more work I mean the festival has programmed yeah, placed an emphasis on programming women as in in featured ways and working with artists from the beginning of their careers. So those are kind of threads that you'll see passing through through everything that we do. Um, for example, when we worked with Orphy Robinson, we'd known him for a very long time. When he was used to be in Andy Shepherd's band, and he was like playing as a as a sidesman effectively, and then he kind of developed his own voice. And we were kind of keeping in touch. He was supporting things that we were doing. We were going to see things that he was up to. And then he won the Jazz FM Award last year. And um, he said, oh, I'm doing this thing I really want to do about Astral Weeks. You know, and we were like, yeah, we, we, we'd love to have it in the festival if you fancy doing it. Because um, Astral Weeks was released exactly um, almost to the day, 50, uh, 50 years before the, uh, before the concert that we're doing in the Queen Elizabeth Hall. And so he kind of, you know, set to and did these arrangements and found ways that it wasn't just trying to reproduce what had been there, but took that inspiration and took that feeling and the, the emotion that courses through Astral Weeks and turned it into a great live performance, which he premiered earlier this year in the knowledge that he would be bringing it to the London Jazz Festival. 
And that's something we're going to be hearing about in the interview with Orphe, which is coming up next. Fifty years ago, a group of leading jazz musicians went into a New York studio with Van Morrison and produced the album that would become known as Astral Weeks. At the London Jazz Festival on the 19th of November, Orphe Robinson is bringing musicians together to recreate it. Hello, Orphe. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> if uh, the sound quality is slightly odd today, it's because we are sat in a locker room, a dressing room at the Southbank Centre, which you said you'd been in before a yes, couple that's of right. times. Yeah, yeah, uh, with various different things. Uh, even having uh, Nigel Kennedy warming up over reggae songs and then going out to play Bach. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So you know <laughs> this odd that. corner of the oh, Southbank yes. Centre better than any of us. <laughs> Um, Bruce Springsteen said that Astral Weeks gave him, he said, a sense of the divine. And I know that Mm -hmm. in part that came from Van Morrison, let the musicians improvise around him. When you were thinking about how you were going to recreate this album as a live performance, Mm -hmm. how did you think about bringing that element of spontaneity into it? Are you playing it as they played it or you mix it up a bit? So uh, when I first came to the idea of uh, I'd been invited to listened to the album and, and um, by Colm Carty. Whenever we would meet, he would say, um, uh, you know, why wouldn't you be, you know, interested in doing Astral Weeks? And I said, oh, I, I didn't know you wanted me to uh, be involved in that. He said, yeah, I'll keep asking you, but you keep giving me other people. <laughs> so I was a bit slow, went away, listened to it, and then realised that... Um, because obviously I've come from a jazz background and jazz musicians were the people involved in the album. Yeah. You couldn't then look at it as just a sort of straight, you know, it's six of this, eight of that, da da da. You know, it was, they were expanding on things. And, uh, and when you sort of realise and you go through the words as well, streams of consciousness, mm. and verse, it's just flowing. So, and lots of the recordings were done very quickly yeah, on this in the first yeah, take. Yeah, first they? take. You know, it captured um, an essence and a, and a feeling, a spirituality as well. But everything felt, for me, 360 music. You know, the words were driving things. And as, as uh, musicians, we're used to doing that, particularly when you work with singers. All the players were tip-top um, session players as well yeah. as jazz musicians. There were lots of different things that I picked up that I hadn't really noticed before. Mm. I'd never really uh, explored the album as a whole. It was interesting to really go into it and really absorb yourself into the whole sort of story and treat the, the words and the lyrics. That, I mean, it's poetry. It's absolutely you know amazing. So that was sort of the thing that drew me in and, and made me think that if I choose correctly the musicians, we can bring something to this. It's not just to replicate, because we haven't got Van Morrison in the band. Yeah. Uh, it's to uh, take it to, to somewhere else, to respect it, but also to just add something of us to that. So, in practice, that means that musicians on stage, they've yeah. got a score? Or? Yeah, they're, they're open to, uh, as um, Van Morrison um, said to uh, Connie Kay, actually, you know, um, just play what you feel that works yeah. for the music. So... You know, for the musicians, it's quite easy to pick up chordal progressions, harmony, melody, all of those things. But it's also about really feeling the story of each piece and treating it with with the respect that it deserves, um, but also bringing, you know, again, the story. I've always thought the story in the song tells you what's acceptable.
will you be playing on stage? I uh, play uh, vibraphone on there on some numbers and percussion and just directing uh, things. But you will then be limiting yourself to just a few of your many instruments because, I mean, a partial list, I think, of what you play is vibraphone, marimba, keyboard, saxophone. What have I missed? Still uh, drums? Uh, yeah, still pans. <laughs> still pans. <laughs> yeah, vibraphone. Uh, yeah, oh, sorry, I said vibraphone. Um, trumpet. And how would you describe the vibra- vibraphone to someone who had not seen one? It's not a vibrating phone, which is what it sounds like at shorthand for. Um, okay, so there are, there are different ways <laughs> yeah, to describe it. Before, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Art Deco tea trolley or the haunted the milk Art float. Deco. Okay, wow. Uh, <laughs> <no>. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's the bells. It's the uh, it brings the world. The heavens open up, and all of that thing, um, heavy metal vibes, and all of that. Um, okay, so. In the family of tuned percussion, you have, obviously, xylophones and marimbas. A xylophone, um, the clue is in the word xylo, is a Greek word for wood, so it would be you know, wooden instruments. Marimba is the lower end of that. The vibraphone is metal, um, metal notes, and then with the pipes, it has the various different sizes of pipes, uh, going up from the low notes, uh, where the pipes are bigger, and the high notes, where they're smaller. But the vibra, obviously, is to do with vibrate. So we have a motor that turns and it turns these little um, things inside the pipes and it gives you your vibrations when you press a pedal, a sustain pedal. Actually, it shouldn't be called a vibraphone, it should be called a tremellophone because it's actually a tremolo sound. But, I don't know, tremellophone is a bit of a mouth. Yes, that's catchy, for yeah. sure. For an already underrepresented <laughs> yes. instrument, it's yeah. not go giving it its yeah, proper no, name. That's right, <laughs> yeah. And we were talking yeah. a bit before we started recording about the fact you would like to learn to play the guitar. Yes. Would you, yeah. I mean, you've learnt so many instruments. Mm-hmm. Are you good at not knowing what you're doing? I don't know whether it must make it harder or easier being a professional musician. How do you feel when you're in front of an entirely new instrument that you want to learn? Do you mind being terrible at it to begin oh, with? Oh, no, 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 no. I love the idea. It's a journey. It's a dis- journey of discovery. I said, what does that do? What's this? What's that? I had, was it two years ago, <laughs> I was given um, an accordion. But however, I was banished to the shed at the end of the garden <laughs> after a while. Um, but that's incredible because it's got obviously the uh, a sort of keyboard as we would normally recognise, but then it's got these pin things that, you know, you push in and out and it's fourths and fifths and all of that. And it, I just had this whole thing of, um, you know, I, wouldn't it be great to hold a whole learn a whole accordion repertoire of um, Bob Marley songs um, I thought could be really cool and uh, yeah I, I explore I'm very interested in technology as well you know all these new apps you can get for all the various different um, uh, devices uh, I'm quite you know into all of that world and the digital mm. world um, uh, with this uh, the Roly, which is the um, this whole new way of playing uh, it's a keyboard that um, instead of your, your usual sort of set notes you can go in between them so you can really bend things around and you can send sounds to the space and all sorts of things um but you can also uh, you're limited only in your imagination as to programming things as well and creating your own sound world really i've always been the nosy kid <laughs> <laughs> 
So you're clearly very good at keeping up with, you know, technology, what's happening in the jazz world. What is happening in the younger British jazz scene at the mm-hmm. moment? Is this a boom time, as I think it's often been, well, articles come out referring to it as such mm-hmm. recently, or is there only particular sorts of jazz that are getting airtime? How do you see the current landscape for teenagers, people in their early 20s? It's a good time because it kind of reminds me of the 80s when I came through in my generation. That term jazz is such a wide umbrella of sound. Um, And as you know, within jazz, there are lots of different genres. Um, But we were uh, fusing, say, uh, sort of modern jazz uh, and sort of the standards and various different things with things like reggae and funk and soul and R&B and all of those things. So we were creating a whole new sound world and there was a whole generation of young people uh, coming through from a Caribbean background as well that engaged with the music. Um, and because we were not really invited into the establishments where you uh, were being taught, music and jazz we created our own um we had a background of coming from you know soul and funk mm. and reggae and, da, 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 and military music and all sorts of things that we then um as you develop on the instruments more and you get more technically proficient you seek out music music that also marries the two um and jazz for me playing the vibraphone and playing the marimba and, and all these things was the natural progression um for the instrument and of course, people were signed to the huge labels, and you know, I, I myself was fortunate to sign to Blue Note, mm. which is the legendary jazz label, and all of that uh, side of things. So you, you then travelled the world, and then you found out that people actually knew about musicians who were here, knew about bands that you never th- thought they would know about, and all of that really opened the door. And then the door closed again, <laughs> but a lot of the musicians became session musicians, so they then influenced other. Uh, musics and other bands and bands that do very well you would see all these musicians coming through jazz was always there and has continued and there's been fantastic musicians but the spotlight wasn't on them after that it just kind of you know quietened down a bit and it went back to a a kind of like uh, there were the enthusiast and the specialist and you know the guys with the beards and the goatees and all of that but now what's happened is new audiences are coming back in again there's new audiences who would say oh I, I don't like jazz but I like this and we go well we're playing jazz and they go oh I didn't know this was jazz so you'd get a lot of that as well um, and that influenced new musicians coming through and, da, 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 and then musicians started to morph into teachers and ended up into these institutions <laughs> where we uh, were not really a part of previously uh, funnily enough, uh, this year has been the first year where there's been probably mm, half a dozen teachers who've come from my background mm. um, uh, who are in the institutions. Most of us worked within community groups. And uh, from those uh, community projects and things have come lots of musicians uh, who have gone off to do, you know, they might be doing rock, they might be doing pop, they might be doing jazz or whatever. We had a lot of musicians coming through and a lot of uh, vocalists as well who have gone on to do all sorts of things. They're in bands like, you know, they play for Red Chair and they play for Rudimental, they play for all these different groups because I didn't force jazz down their throat. It was just music appreciation. So a good time to be 
a young jazz musician. Very good. But you've also yeah. spoken critically about certain trends within the younger jazz scene of what did you refer to as kind of cabaret singers or cabaret style yeah what, what would that mean yeah we had we did have that i would say 10 years ago i used to call it the invasion of the cabaret singers obviously the center of london in particular but that became the big thing of um you know being pushed and it really wasn't the jazz because there was a lot of music going on that was much more interesting than just recreating music from the 1920s. Mm. So for quite a few of us, we were looking at some fantastic singers being literally forced to do a particular thing that they didn't really want to do. But to push that area of music above all the other incredible things that were happening in improvised music in particular, the scene in, in the UK is absolutely fantastic with the London Improvisers Orchestra and the various different venues like the um, Café Oto and the Vortex. And, you know, you know, you go to the festivals abroad and you see a lot of English musicians who are not being pushed here. What do you think it would be like to be a musician learning their trade now with access to the internet? better or worse? There are ups and downs. There are upsides and downsides. I mean, one is that the instant access to information and to audiences and just to a market, a whole market that you was really difficult to get to before because you had to go through record companies and you had to have your stuff in the record shops. It cost a lot of money and uh, those deals were not really around for everyone. Um, uh, and to get, yeah, to get your uh, music in the shops was, was really something uh, if you didn't have that help. And also just to have it on display, it's OK getting it in the shop but if nobody knows it's actually there, you know, promotion, marketing, all of those things. The youngsters now, or, you know, whoever, um, can embrace oh, so many different things by going on the internet to, uh, to invite audiences and people to listen to you. Uh, the things that you can put up, you've got great, the best site for me, which is uh, um, Bandcamp, uh, that you'll, you go direct to the artist rather than going through streaming services that the artist doesn't really see anything. I mean, it's in the word streaming, they stream all the money away. Um, so you, you will uh, put something out and uh, it'll have you know, 50 million plays and you get 10 quid. The sales that you would have in, say, the 1970s, 80s, 90s are never going to happen again. Uh, you can get to number one, I suppose, in a pop chart now on, you know, on a sort of five, selling five figures or something, whereas you wouldn't have even scraped the top 200 at that time. But you can create your own audience, you can promote your own gigs, you can, you know, live stream your gig, your rehearsal, your practice to people watching. With Astral Weeks, we put up online maybe three minutes uh, um, of a rehearsal. As we were going through a rehearsal, we live streamed and uh, the venue involved that we were going to play in then sold out. So, so it's easy to find even yeah. relatively niche audiences and yes. bring them together. Yeah. And just coming back to Astral Weeks then, what kind of audience do you expect to have for a gig like this? Is it kind of old Van Morrison fans or is it younger people who found you on YouTube? When you talk to people after the show, what's right. the spread like? Oh, it's uh, it's people who love the album, the original album, so obviously they are, you know, um, uh, Van fans. Um, Van fans, nice. Van fans, oh, yeah, <laughs> I've used that before, that's a good one. Um, there'll be that, but there'll also be people coming along who are, you know, maybe just want to see what it is you're doing now. I mean, each... I'm always doing something different um, as well. And a lot of the musicians on the stage are as well. 
So, uh, yeah, everyone's invited. Come along. <laughs> thank you, Arthur Robinson. We're looking forward to it. And that's November 19th here at the South Bank Centre. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, you can see all the events that the South Bank Centre will be hosting for the London Jazz Festival and get tickets by going to southbankcentre.co.uk. Now, let's round things off with some recommendations. In an interview, I think, last year, you said that you wanted the Jazz Festival to be a bit like the proms. So proms is seen as an entry point to classical music and you want this festival to be seen as an entry point to jazz music as well as your hordes of you know already devoted audience members. So I'd love it if you could give us some recommendations for people who are wanting to go to the festival and aren't sure what events to start with. So if I were to go on a date over the month of November, which will hopefully happen, where what event should I be going to? I think you'd probably better start at the beginning. The uh, Jazz Voice Gala that we do is Guy Barker and a 42-strong orchestra um, taking eight different singers and asking them to sing their hit and a song that has a kind of meaning to them. So often it's a kind of classic jazz number. He arranges all of them. So eight singers, 16 songs, and you'll never hear them again live the way you do then. That ends up being, it's on. It's it's kind of projected onto giant video screens. It's, a, it's actually a curiously intimate experience mm. for a very, very big concert. But that's something where it's almost like giving someone a box of sweets and, in, and, and inviting them to pick from them. It's an event that we're very proud to bring to the festival hall at the start of the festival so a successful date and one i could bring anyone to because there's something for everyone and then if it went well and we wanted to party together at a later date where would we be heading next well i think if you want to party the 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 party i'd recommend is uh booger wesseltoft he's one of those artists who sits inside dance and jazz and he is in this project is inspired by Esbjorn Svensson, who was one of the kind of great 21st century jazz composers, died tragically young, and his band is playing with Booger, n- not playing the music they used to play with Esbjorn, but almost music that's inspired and creating new work. It's a band called Rimden, and it's a fantastic first half, actually, um, with a, a British bass player called uh, Liren Donin, who's created a piece about refugees uh, called A Thousand Boats. That sense of refugees... An exodus is another of those sort of ideas that lies under the surface of the of, of the jazz festival. And this band, Thousand Boats, we saw playing in a club and really wanted to program them on a big stage where they'd play to a lot more people. Brilliant. And then if I wanted to really be at the cutting edge of something new, I used to get the enemy every week and tick off all the bands that I knew and research the ones I didn't. So thinking about that kind of hardcore devotion to the cutting edge, where should I go? So the, there's lots of things inside the South Bank programme that very few people have heard of apart from the devotees. And the festival, I think, does a lot of that. In this. It, it, sort of, it gets people to one audience and then they grow out from there. So the Italian pianist Remo Anzavino, who's playing in the Purcell Room, I'd, I'd recommend him. But I've got to recommend Camilla George and Sarah Tandy. I mean, I think they're just fantastic players. In a way, I'm sort of surprised it's taken so long for someone to say, we're putting on a main stage and let's really shine the spotlight. Brilliant. And the last recommendation for people who were wooed at previous editions of the London Jazz Festival and who now have children as a result of that match. Where should they go? Again, there's the, we, we've created a special family show, which is part of the programme we're doing around Windrush. 
It's uh, Cherise Adams-Burnett is a young singer and uh, kind of creator, composer, whose work we really loved. And we talked to her about what she would like to do. And she had the stories of her grandmother, um, who used to tell her the story of the yellow birds that would fly across the ocean to sort of represent the idea of their travel from, from the Caribbean to Britain. So she's created this show which, with, a, with a little band called Evelyn and the Yellow Birds. And that premieres on the first Saturday in the Purcell Room at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I'd say that's a must. If you want something that you can enjoy with young people, it's that. And then go on to some of the free stage activity. Because the free stage activity is very inclusive. You can see as much as little as you want on the Claw Ballroom. Um, and that's one of the things that's really special about the South Bank's presence. Is It isn't just about the concerts you buy tickets for, but it's also about all the sort of things that that flood the whole centre and join it all up and mean the bars are buzzing and mean that it's a really exciting place to come to. That is a brilliant roundup. Uh, David, thank you very much for coming in and good luck programming across 70 stages. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Think Aloud. We'll be back next time with a comedy special where my sparkling wit will be matched and then outmatched by award-winning comedian Dave Gorman, who'll be joining me in the studio. And we'll be answering a comedically themed burning question, which is how do you make something not funny, funny?